0: Uh, as kez said the reading this morning or well, the first reading this morning is psalm fifteen which is found on page five hundred and forty two of the church bibles uh, in your leaflet or you can follow along on the screen. psalm fifteen a psalm of david Lord who may dwell in your sacred tent who may live in your holy mountain? The one whose way of life is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honours those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. second reading comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 25, and is found on page 1051 in the Church Bibles. A certain ruler asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' "'Why do you call me good?' Jesus answered. "'No one is good except God alone. "'You know the commandments. "'You shall not commit adultery. "'You shall not murder. "'You shall not steal. "'You shall not give false testimony. "'Honor your father and mother. "'All these I have kept since I was a boy,' he said. "'When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "'You still lack one thing. "'Sell everything you have and give to the poor "'and you will have treasure in heaven.' Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I don't know if uh, many of you are old enough to remember Simon and Garfunkel. Some of you are. You remember the song: "I'm a rock, I'm an island. A rock feels no pain. An island never cries." Can I say, uh, "No man, no woman, no boy, no girl is an island, is a rock." We all have a desire to belong, don't we? We all long for belonging. I've confessed uh, to you before that I suffer sometimes, particularly weddings, but sometimes just normal, when I go and I see a family enjoying being together. No slur on my family at all, but I want to be part of that. I want to join their family as well. I don't know, that may be a bit weird for you. I don't know, maybe you understand that. Or maybe it's not a family thing for you, it's it's friends. You see the friends at school or the friends at work, the friends who've known each other uh, forever and you think, oh, I'd love to be in that group. Maybe it's the school prefects with the funky blazers and the special Hogwarts tower and the sacred bathroom and all the other things. Maybe it's the footy team. You wanna be in the team. When I was at school, the first 15 rugby, the first 11 cricket, they were the gods of the school. And oh, to be in them. I was a disdainful despiser of such things. Uh, First volleyball, first water pot, no. They treated me with contempt. To be part of that group was just everything. Maybe it's the team at work that you look in and go, oh, I'd love to be part of that. That desire to belong, C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of the Narnia books, wrote lots of other stuff. He talks about it as the desire to be in the inner ring. And there are lots of these rings. This desire to belong is a very human reality. And there's nothing actually wrong with it. It's the way that we've actually been made. That's why Simon and Garfunkel actually got it wrong. They are not rocks. They are not islands. We all want to belong. There is nothing wrong with that desire. And this morning in Psalm 15, we see the ultimate inner ring. Let's start. David, King David wrote this Psalm. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Now, you might look at that and think, mm, you know, the whole idea of camping on top of a mountain doesn't really do it for you. I love camping, but there's a, there's a limit to it. There's a limit to it. The weather needs to be good. Otherwise it gets a bit frustrating. Do we long to camp on top of a mountain? What's David actually getting at? He's not talking about going on a camping trip, because he's talking about a particular tent, the sacred tent, the tabernacle, which later David's son Solomon replaced with the temple. And this was the center of Israelite faith. This was the core of their religion. And the mountain that he speaks of is not just some random mountain. It was Mount Zion. And so what David is doing in asking these two questions, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may ascend the mountain? He's actually talking about who may have the closest personal relationship with God. He's talking about being at the heart, the heart of God's relationship with his humanity. Who is in that inner ring? but why would you want to be? Why would you want to be? Maybe this morning, you're not a Christian person. It's great that you're here, can I say? But maybe you're thinking, oh, that's good for them, but I don't really want that. Why do you want to be? Maybe as a Christian, you're thinking, actually, you know, there's lots of things I love. And God's just one of them. But can I actually say, this is the best thing. Because in it, the God of creation has come to us and invited us into relationship with him. And from that relationship, blessings overflow. Let me give you just two particular ones. Belonging in that relationship gives incredible security. A bit later in the Psalms, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord... He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The psalmist sings of the salvation that comes from the Lord, captured beautifully in Hebrews 13 in the promise from Joshua, God's promise to his people. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Incredible security comes in belonging. But not only security, but significance. No mere white blazer, no mere team jersey, no mere human significance. Psalm 8, what is man? What are human beings that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for him, you have made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. Our creator gives such incredible significance to us. And so much more, those who are his. Leviticus captures it. I will walk among you, God says, and be your God. And you will be my people. Incredible significance. Could have pulled out so many more. Why do you want to belong? Why do you want to be in this closest personal relationship with God? Security, significance, and so much more. But maybe you're thinking, actually, you yeah, know, that's good for you, but I don't need that. I can do this by myself. I've got this covered. God, you can have God. I can do it my way. Can I suggest that you, even though you may not call them by these terms, you have God. There is always something that is ultimate in your life. There is always something that gives meaning and purpose, that gives security and significance. I know that I am safe because... I know that my life has meaning and significance because dot, dot, dot. This fellow, those of you who have been around, you've met him before. His name's David Foster Wallace. Uh, he's no longer with us. Wasn't a Christian and at a farewell uh, address to a bunch of graduating university students. He delivered an address and in it he writes these words. He says, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This man was no Christian, but he recognises Everybody worships. Everyone has something that is ultimate, something that you look to for those blessings, for that meaning, for that security, for that significance. Maybe it's your family. Those network of relationships, the friendships that you have, the money that you've accumulated, your devastating good looks, your fame, the success The abilities that you have, whatever you look to, I know I am significant dot dot dot. What is in that space? Because that is your God, even though you may not call it by that name. And they are hard gods. They are gods without grace. Let me keep reading from Foster Wallace. If you worship money and things, he writes, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they grieve you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always being on the verge of being found out, and so on. You don't believe me? Let me give you an example. I watched a movie with this lady in it yesterday. She's a great actress, Helen Mirren, isn't she? She's such a great actress that the Queen recognized her services to the movie industry, made her Dame Helen Mirren. She writes these words. She says, I wake up in the morning sometimes wanting to retire from my own ambition because her God is success. Let me go, I say. Let me go. Please let me go. Haven't I done enough? Proved myself enough to myself. Can't I be left in peace now? Why am I still eaten up with envy at what everyone else is doing? Why the continuous anxiety, the worry, the one eye over the shoulder, wondering about what's around the corner, who's being offered what? God, I wish I wasn't like that. I'd give anything to know what satisfaction feels like. Do you hear those words? I'd give anything to know what satisfaction feels like. Because she worships a God of her success. And in her own eyes, she judges herself as having fallen short. She needs to prove again and again and again and again that she is worth something. We all serve gods. We all worship something. We all long to be in that relationship, to find that security and that significance. Let's go back to our psalm. There's a list. I don't know how you felt as Eliza read it for us. Let's go through it. Who can ascend? Who can dwell? The one whose walk is blameless, the one who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, the one whose inside is pure and it manifests outside, the one who lives with integrity. Verse 3. The one whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to the neighbor and casts no slur on others. The one who only speaks what is good, what is right, what builds others up. Let's go on. The one who despises a vile person and honours those who fear the Lord. The one whose allegiances are clear cut. The one who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. Now, we might be a little uneasy, this whole despise language. We might be thinking, oh, that's a bit condemning of others. But I ask you, what he's talking about here is the one who delights in evil. Talking about the the one who runs a business that exploits the poor and the needy and the vulnerable to feather their own nest. The one, the serial adulterer who breaks marriage after marriage after marriage, who destroys family after family after family Do we sit back and say, oh no, that's fine? God hates that. And we must develop a hate for what He hates. How we manifest that, we don't go out and seek vengeance on them, we seek to love our enemies. But we cannot say that that is good. Let's keep going. The one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, lends money to the poor without interest, does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The one whose dealings in this life are fair and moral and compassionate. As you work through the list, ask yourself, do you have a place Now, if you've answered yes, I want to ask you a question. On what basis? Because if you've said, as we've gone through the list, yes, I ticked those boxes, done it. Can I suggest you need to look again? Because in my experience, mostly when we think we have done the right thing, it's not that we have measured ourselves against God. We've actually measured ourselves against each other. And we look at others and we say, well, I am better than them. I tell the truth more than they tell the truth. I am more compassionate than those people over there. And we have a standard that is a kind of a balanced scale. And we just hope that our good stuff is just a little bit more substantial than our bad stuff. And at the end of the day, if I can get to 51%, I can scrape in Can I just say God doesn't work like that? With him, there are no relative measures. There's no 51:49. The Bible tells us that God is holy. And so if you are going to be with God, you need to be holy. And holy is not 51, it's 100. Let's go and explore that little story, the other story that Eliza read for us. You remember, it's probably a familiar story of this rich guy that comes to Jesus and he asks a really bizarre question. Why is it bizarre? Well, what's the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, how does that work? How do you inherit? How do you do something in order that you might inherit? You you inherit because you're part of the family. You don't do stuff to inherit, but... Jesus doesn't pull him up on that necessarily. Jesus gives him the commandments, five of them. Don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, only your mother and father goes through. And what does the man say? I've done these things. I've ticked the boxes. And then Jesus pulls out the trump. Because Jesus only gave him five of the ten, didn't he? And he says, now go and sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man goes away sad because he was very, very wealthy. And Jesus' question, maybe the man said, yes, I've done those five. But Jesus' question is all about the first command. Have no other gods but me. And the very fact that he could not let go of his wealth showed that that was God for him. It was more important than inheriting eternal life, more important than the closest personal relationship with God. And he goes away sad it's possible to tick boxes and still fall short. So if you've answered yes, think hard. If you've answered no, can I say, if you are not a Christian, that is the best answer that you can actually have. And I'll explain that to you in just a second. If you're not a Christian here today, and you say, actually, I don't belong. Praise God for that, because he has shown you What is at the heart of Christianity is that he meets our needs. But if you are a Christian person and you've said no, you need to keep listening because that is not good. Who is the one person, the one person who meets these criteria? You know him, don't you? The Lord Jesus is the only one who could tick the boxes successfully? And he wouldn't be fifty-one forty-nine. He would be 100%. He has fulfilled the law. If you're a, a bit of a theological boffin, this is what's called by theologians, the active righteousness of Christ. All the stuff he did to live that perfect life, he achieves it. And so he can dwell, he can ascend the mountain of the Lord. He belongs in the per- closest personal relationship with God. But the amazing truth of the Christian faith is that through faith in Christ, that is ours too. Not based on our merit, not based on our achievements, but based on his achievements, based on everything that he has done. You can summarise the gospel, the good news of the cross, is that in Christ, that he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death we should have died to bring us to God. Let's unpack that. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a life of love for God and love for neighbour perfectly. And the amazing thing is, is that through the offer of the gospel, this is ours. Through trusting in what God has done, this is ours. I've been reading a book recently and I want to read to you a section because the first time I read this, it shocked me. This man writes, he says, "'The life Jesus lived to fulfill the law is mine.'" Often we think we're quite happy, Christians, to see that Jesus takes all our bad stuff. But what we lose is that he actually gives us all his good stuff. He writes, he can see through the eyes of Jesus the events of scripture. I see a crowd gather on a mountainside prior to Calvary through Jesus, though Jesus preaches to them of the righteousness of God in his kingdom. The wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount is mine. Another time a man approaches Christ with torment of spirit and body. Jesus commands a legions of devils to come out of him, but the victory is mine. As the savior approaches a small town, a widow comes to him in a funeral procession. The coffin bears the body of her only son Christ touches the coffin despite its ceremonial uncleanness and the sun rises. The compassion and power of that act are mine. In the wilderness, Satan approaches and tempts God's son with allurements that would satiate pleasure, power and pride. Jesus resists him with the word of God and the righteousness of that resistance is mine. Brian Chappell says it like this, all the credit for Christ's sermons, his miracles, resistance to evil and suffering for good is mine. And so the amazing truth of the Christian gospel is that through faith in what Christ has done, we can have that closest personal relationship. Not because we are good, but because he is good. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. That transfer works the other way. We get all his righteousness. We get all the good stuff. He gets our sin. And as he died, we die with him. We die to sin. We die to God's judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus, he was cast out. The one who by right... Deserve that relationship with God. The one who was holy as God is holy became unclean, cast out, rejected for us. Penalty paid. Penalty paid. It's an amazing truth. In Christ we have a place. And David knew that. David wasn't looking at himself. If you know his story, the guy's a murderer and an adulterer. I don't think he's standing up saying, I've got it all together. I ticked the boxes. But David knew the big picture that God had come and by his grace had bound himself to Israel. And it was that grace, that grace that reaches its fulfillment in the cross, that grace is the same grace that we can rest on as we can come to God and find that closest personal relationship. So does it mean that we can ditch verses two to three to five? We don't have to worry about all that good stuff, we can just live our own way, doing our own thing. Does it matter? How we live? Yeah, it does matter how we live. But can I say that if you think for a second that somehow your good works, your truth telling, your love of the good and hatred of the evil, your compassion on the poor is earning God's favour, you're fooling yourself. Because you already have God's favour. There is nothing you can add to grace. It is a free gift. Christians can often fall into the trap of, I know I'm saved by grace, but now I've got to pay God back. So all this stuff that I do, I'm trying to show God how thankful I am. And there's, there's a good side to that, but there can be a, a bad side to that as well where we live under the law of, I've got to be good enough to please God God is pleased because he he sees Christ and not you you're there not because of your merits but because of his and they are perfect and so you are accepted think about personal relationships that you have maybe marriage maybe friendships her and my wife, asked me to do something. I don't go through the process, or I shouldn't, thinking, if I do this, she'll love me. No, I shouldn't do that. Or, she's done so much for me, I better pay her back. It's not the way it's meant to work. Or if I, if I don't do it, she'll reject me and cast me off. No, that's not the way it's meant to work. I should want to do it out of the relationship that we have. And God in Christ has established that relationship by his grace. I don't obey God so that he might accept me. I obey God because he has accepted me and he loves me that much. Why would I want to? Disobey such a one. And he is my creator. He knows what is best. And so, in his love, he guides me on that path. The life that we live flows out of that grace. The welcome into that inner ring is ours. And that transforms our life and that is what David is drawing our attention to. John Bunyan, I introduced you to him last week. He spent 12 years in prison because he would not stop preaching the gospel of Christ. All he had to do is say, oh, I'll stop and they would have let him out. 12 years he's there. His enemies came to him, his opponents came to him and said, if you keep assuring people of God's love, they will do whatever they want. They'll live careless lives. They'll sin. And you know Bunyan's reply, if I assure people of his love, then they will do whatever he wants. William Cowper, another one we met last week, captured this idea in a great hymn he said this to see the law by Christ fulfilled to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice let's pray Lord we thank you We thank you that we can dwell with you. That through faith we have the closest personal relationship with you. Because it rests not on our strength, not on our merit, but on everything that your son has done for us. Father, we pray that you would keep reminding us each and every day, each and every moment, of the love that you have lavished upon us in Christ, that by your spirit you would stir our hearts, that we might love you in our words, in our lives, not to earn your love, but because we have your love, and that we might rest in that grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to spend just a moment now just in quiet reflection. Maybe it's